Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of Left Foot. And I'm here to announce that our 12 audio-based business development challenges are now available. 12 practical, execution-oriented steps to predictable success. Part of the Left Foot GPS growth practice solutions for business development. Go to leftfoot.com GPS for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest was a big law transaction lawyer with roles at Skadden, at Brobeck, and at Wilson before becoming a tech startup general counsel and educator. He sees the role of lawyer as advisor and business partner as opposed to technician. A true believer in networking to be successful, he joined Meetup as their general counsel in 2010. He's currently the head of integration at Meetup following the WeWork transaction. David Pashman, welcome to Left Foot. Hi, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me, and it's great to be here. Great to have you as a guest in our program, David. Excited to talk with you about these questions related to evaluating outside counsel and other partners within your firm, within your practice. So let's start by talking about your transition. So you went from big law to in-house. What personal strengths really helped you with that transition and helped you be effective in-house? Sure. So I think from my perspective, it's really a combination of two things. I think first, I've been successful because I've been able to effectively communicate with a whole bunch of different types of people. When you work at a law firm, you're dealing with other lawyers, either at the firm or in-house for the most part, that all have similar background that you do and you all speak the same language and you understand things and you have a common frame of reference. But transitioning in-house, I knew that I would be working mostly not with other lawyers, but with almost exclusively non-lawyers, whether they're salespeople or marketing people or engineers or product managers or people on the finance or HR team. And so it's very different than speaking with other lawyers because you can always go back to, oh, my first year law school class and remember this concept or that concept. And so I found that something that was really important to be really successful was being able to effectively communicate with a variety of different types of people and specifically to explain complex legal issues to business people and make them understand why they should care. And then secondly, I think to the extent that I've been successful in being a good business advisor, it's because I'm comfortable making decisions based on imperfect information. In other words, I can translate the maybes that are the common answers of lawyers into a yes or a no without eliminating all of the variables or the uncertainties or collecting 100% of the information that everyone might like to have. Great response. And, and of course, both communication and that ability to work somewhat in the gray area. Exactly. You know, those are critical skills in business because you have to be able to respond in a timely manner and you can't check all the boxes and you have to get comfortable with some risk. Any hints to those that are listening that have a desire to go in-house about how to get comfortable with that risk? Sure. I think, and this is not unique to my transitioner and even the transition of someone from outside to in-house lawyer, but it's, I think the way that I am 
comfortable with the risk or the uncertainty is I like to think that I have a very good sense of what I know and what I don't know. And so that when I'm operating within the realm of what I know, either from experience or training or study, I can rely on my judgment within that realm to say, okay, I know as much as I'm going to know. I know as much as someone would expect anyone to know. And I'm going to make a decision based on my experience and judgment. And if I'm wrong, so be it. But I know that I can make this decision as well as anyone else. But then when I'm operating in a realm of something I don't know, whether it's a subject matter outside my expertise or something that I have no experience in, I know where that line is. And I'm also comfortable in saying, you know, okay, this is an area where I might not be able to make the call in the moment and I'm going to need to come back to this. And I think having a sense of being really confident and having a strong sense of what one knows and what one doesn't know is critical to being comfortable in this gray area. There are times when you are engaging with partners, whether that be on the business side or on the legal side. How are you evaluating those partners? What do you look for in those partners? I think that as a threshold matter, my checklist is probably similar to most certainly subject matter expertise or technical proficiency is critical regardless of what the project is. In terms of cost, for all matters, cost is a component, but the degree to which that drives my decision-making varies. I'm generally not looking for the lowest cost provider. I think most importantly, I'm looking for legal service providers to partner with me that have a broad experience and sort of a seasoned judgment that goes well beyond simply knowing what the law is or what the statute says, but knowing how that law applies to my situations. I mean, what I found is that today with so many online resources, anyone can find legal information. I don't need to call a tax partner at a big firm and pay $1,000 an hour to have someone tell me what section blah, blah, blah of the Internal Revenue Code says. I can figure that out myself. What I want is someone that's had a lot of deal flow or a lot of experience advising companies and people in my situation so that they can help me navigate the specific situation I'm facing. And so when I'm selecting partners to work with, I just want to know that they've got a lot of experience in counseling similarly situated companies on how to make decisions. And then ultimately, that is sort of knowing not just what the law says, but how the law applies in these situations. Having those examples, they've applied it before and they've seen what's happened. They've gone one direction or the other. That said, going back to your first point about cost, do you consciously think about cost as a value component? So basically saying, yes, you're not concerned about the actual cost if there's true value. Have you been able to kind of establish for yourself, you know, what would be a certain cost related to the value that would be delivered? Is that something you consciously think about? I don't know if I've ever explicitly thought about it the way you describe it, but it's certainly accurate characterization. First of all, what I found is that for most projects, the law firms that I'm considering or the partners that I'm looking to work with in the considerations that are all generally in the same price range, you know, that a specific partner might bill out at a little bit of a different rate than someone else. But generally, if I'm looking to a global law firm to help with a a massive project, those law firms are going to cost us an amount that's similar. They're going to be in the similar price range. And if I'm looking for a local counsel to help with a business litigation matter, they're generally going to be in the same price range. So I'm really evaluating the law firms on different criteria as opposed to 
simply cost. I'm looking for the firm that's going to help me get to the right business result. And I'm certainly not looking to get a Maserati for the price of a Mazda. As you're going out and evaluating partners, as people are approaching you, which I'm sure many are, for the listeners that are tuning in because they are outside counsel and they're looking to acquire technology companies, we've had a lot of guests talk about the fact that they're not overly interested in social engagements with potential new partners, but they are very interested in hearing about the technology they've used, what they do to be efficient, of course, their experience. For you, what works? What would be the right approach to basically approach you and try to earn your business? Yeah. So I think demonstrating that someone can give me solid practical answers that can help me solve business problems as opposed to generalized advice is is critical. And that's consistent with what I mentioned before about sort of the selection criteria I'm looking for. And I think one way to do that is to demonstrate that the lawyer understands my company and my business and the problems that we face. And so I would almost frame it as in preparing for whether it's a pitch meeting or just a first conversation to learn about the company you're trying to pitch the same way you would as if you were interviewing for a job at that company. That doesn't necessarily mean going into the same degree of depth and detail, but it's along the same lines. Understand how the company makes money, understand the scope and scale of the company. It's surprising to me how many times I've been on the phone with potential counsel on a new law firm relationship and I'm explaining a problem that we're facing and they just don't understand the nature of the company or what the problem is. Now, obviously, everyone's really busy and people might not have the time to prepare for a call, but understanding some basics will help demonstrate to me that you're actually going to be the right person who can help solve my problems. Absolutely agree. I have to say, I feel that people who have not spent, especially because we have computers in our hands, we have a lot of access to technology. And if someone hasn't done the basic research, it's it's really, to me, it's frustrating. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times I've been on calls and I guess I don't want to presume too much, but it seems to me that, and this is certainly a general statement, doesn't apply to everyone I've spoken with, but people seem to think that the decision making criteria is going to be based on things like how many years they've been a partner or the CV on the website and all the articles that they've written for law journals or maybe their deal sheet. But that stuff's not particularly persuasive to me for the kinds of problems that I want solved. And so just understanding that someone's going to be able to assess the situation and understand what's going on and sort of drive to the point really quickly is a lot more important than an impressive firm bio page, which seems to me what a lot of people often rely on because they'll get on the phone and they would not have thought about what the situation is or understand what the context is. And then they'll just sort of talk generally about their experience. And that's not particularly useful to me. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. And now a word from our sponsor, Nicole here, and a shout out and thank you for tuning into the Left Foot Podcast. Are you looking to energize your business development efforts? Our 12 Left Foot Business Development Challenges will energize your efforts in three areas. Business Development Grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, 
how to focus and develop an expert reputation, commercial savoir-faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Left Foot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to the GPS page at leftfoot.com. Let's talk about an experience where an organization came in, doesn't have to be a law firm, but an organization was looking to partner with you. And they did something that in your mind was truly innovative. Either their offering was innovative or the way they presented it. What have you seen that's innovative today? So I think one of the larger projects that we were looking to partner with service providers for both law firms and technology providers was on the readiness for the new European privacy laws, the GDPR, which goes into effect in May of 2018. And so anticipation of this, we began a selection process to work with both outside counsel and technology providers. And we started with about six firms and then narrowed it down to three on the law firm side. And there were some technology providers. And so I don't think that this is necessarily innovative, but what the people that ultimately won our business did was, you know, again, it goes back to the first principle that I was talking about, focusing on the specific problems is that they really learned our company and they showed to us that they could understand and scope the issue and help us make the right risk-adjusted decisions. And then surprisingly, on the technology side, where I would have expected the service providers to be more innovative, I was basically served up stock marketing materials that didn't really answer any of my questions. And so from my perspective, I'm not looking for anything particularly you know, innovative on the technology side. I'm just looking for someone that's going to partner with me and that's going to help solve my problems. And because at the end of the day, that's really what people in my position want. You know, my job is solving problems. And to the extent that I'm working with outside service providers, I want them to help me solve the problems that people have given to me to solve. And so I'm going to want someone that can prove to me that they're going to be able to do that. You looked at six law firms in that scenario and you went down to three. Of the six, how many were law firms you were previously working with? Two of them were. One I had a broad relationship with and one I had a very narrow project specific relationship with. And of the three that were narrowed down, were any of the original ones that you had previously worked with part of those three? Yes, one of them was. So they possibly knew your organization a bit more or had had you had had past experience with them. Correct. Was that the partner that was selected? Yes. So we wound up working with a firm for this broad project that had previously done a very narrow specific project with us. Was there something specific about them having worked with you that made a difference? Were they just more familiar? Were they able to to hit on points that were more important to you that maybe something they probably could have gleaned from research, but based on working with you previously, they knew this was what you expected? So I actually don't think so. I think there was nothing that they wound up knowing that someone else couldn't have figured out. Ultimately, what drove the decision was that I had worked well with the team and they proved to me that they could 
communicate effectively with me and that they could provide the right risk adjusted solutions. So with the GDPR compliance project, this is something that a lot of companies are going through. I would think that, you know, almost any company that operates in Europe is going through some degree of a readiness assessment. And so what a lot of firms are doing is creating templates and tools and one size fits all solutions. And certainly tools are important and they're efficient because you shouldn't be recreating the wheel every single time on each client's dime. But what I found through the project is that a lot of firms are looking to maximize volume by just taking the same approach across a wide range of different situations. And that was something that I was very cautious of because it would not be very useful for me if the firm came back and told me, here are the 500 pages of regulations and here are all the ways that you're not complying. What I want is a firm that's going to work with me to say, what are the ways to prioritize your compliance and your enforcement risk areas? And how do you best allocate resources in those areas rather than just a laundry list of all the things you need to fix? And the firm that I eventually chose was the firm that I thought could most effectively do that. Right. Could be that partner could help you really prioritize and take on this problem. And I asked that question because a lot of firms feel that incumbency is a significant differentiator. And sometimes it is. In this case, you did pick a firm that you were working with, but it sounds like it was more about the fact that they were able to communicate well with you. They had established a rapport with you that was based on delivering as solution. Exactly. And it wasn't, you know, when I mentioned that their ability to communicate well with me was important, it was more that they communicated to me that they understood my situation and that they could help most effectively guide me through the morass of the GDPR. So there were plenty of other lawyers at other law firms that I had worked very closely with that I liked and that I knew well and that we could certainly communicate. But when it came time to this project, I just didn't feel like they really got it. You know, they were trying to basically apply this generalized approach that they're using for all their clients. And I didn't believe and I didn't feel and I didn't, they didn't convince me that they were going to be able to effectively tailor those solutions to the situation that we were in. And I'm not suggesting that everything needed to be bespoke because while we might be different than other companies, we were not in a unique situation. It's just that we needed to be differentiated from every single other client. I wasn't necessarily demanding a bespoke suit, but I at least needed it to be tailored to us. You had an expectation that they were going to assist you. That's why you were going to outside counsel. They would be getting to the specifics at some point in their solution. Absolutely understood. So on the tech side, just to spend a minute there for our folks that are listening in that are selling legal technology solutions. We've heard from clock members from major tech companies. So Google, Yahoo, Cisco, Microsoft, technology vendors come in and talk to them and don't truly explain what their technology does. They make an assumption because they're a tech company that they don't have to fully explain it or they're not clear in their explanation. And the comment we got from Mary O'Carroll at Google was, you know, very often people will come in and she'll give them the 10 minutes to present their solution and she doesn't know what they actually present it when they leave. On the tech side, similar challenges? Is it more about communication or when you're making decisions, you're not seeing things or maybe you are seeing things that would change your business? So that's an interesting question. I've not been 
in the situation very frequently where someone is trying to sell me a solution and I don't understand what it actually is. And I'm sure that happens. The reason I've not been in that situation is because the way technology solutions are brought into the legal department or the business operations department is generally I or somebody else identifies a problem that we have. And then we go looking for the solution. We generally don't spend a lot of time listening to people pitch solutions to us that we haven't been looking for. So we're certainly approached often. And I, you know, I see about a dozen emails a week of people trying to sell me a solution. I'm sure there's a lot more that never make it past the spam filter, but I'm generally not paying too much attention to those. Rather, it's sort of working the other way where we identify a problem, whether it's, you know, cap table and equity management or contract management or collaboration, and then we go looking for the solutions. No, that makes sense. Absolutely. And, and of course, that's likely a better use of your time than really evaluating what's out there that's not addressing a problem that currently exists. You're in an organization that is running lean from a legal staff perspective. I'm assuming that as you look out in the market and you do partner, as we spoke about earlier, you're very conscious of how you're spending your time and then, of course, your budget. Let's talk about the change that's occurred in the industry. There's been so much attention to ensuring that your organization isn't experiencing risk. Are there non-lawyers that you can bring onto your team that can assist with that? Are there more compliance professionals that you can bring in at a lower cost? And are there technologies and partners out there that would allow you to be more effective with your legal spend? Is that part of your world? Is that something that you're held accountable to first? And then second, are you spending time saying, I want to be more efficient with our legal spend and these are the forward looking things we could do with it? Absolutely. So a couple different components to that. You mentioned having non-lawyers do some of the work and specifically that's something that we've done on the content side of things. So Meetup is a an online platform that hosts a lot of user-generated content. And so we have policies and guidelines, and there's a lot of work in terms of ensuring that the activity and the content on our platform is in line with our mission and our policies. And while we don't moderate and review all of the content, and we certainly don't screen it before it's created, we do want to make sure that we're keeping a careful watch on what's going on on our platform and also responding promptly to any complaints from members. And so we have an integrity team that does that work. Now, when I started seven years ago, that was something that I spent a lot of time doing and then eventually built up policies and procedures and training resources and then hired other people to do that work and then built a trust and safety team to do that work, which eventually led to the creation of the integrity team. And so that's a whole body of work that is now being done by non-lawyers with the support of the legal team. But that's one way we've managed cost. In terms of technology solutions, the one area that we have not been able to find a great technology solution for a problem we face is something that I mentioned before, which is contract management. There's certainly a lot of solutions in the marketplace, but in talking with other people in similarly sized legal departments and in evaluating them, I haven't really found one that looks like it's actually going to 
solve the problems that we have. And so if there's anyone out there listening that has what they think is a great contract management solution, they should feel free to reach out. And then in terms of legal spend and legal budget, I certainly pay attention to the budget of the legal department in terms of what we're paying for technology solutions and all of our costs. I do not focus on outside counsel spend in terms of cost savings because I do think of it in terms of value produced going back to the paradigm that you used before. Outside counsel are my partners in helping me solve problems. And fortunately, I've had the experience of working with people that are very effective in doing that. And so I'm looking to find the best solutions and not necessarily the cheapest solutions. And so the approach that I've taken is to certainly try and get budgets for projects to set expectations so that I know ahead of time if there's something that is going to be significantly more expensive than we anticipated. I, no one wants to be in the position of getting a bill at the end of an engagement that's five times what I thought it was going to be. I'm generally not focused on managing the costs of outside counsel. And I certainly know that that's something that a lot of in-house lawyers need to be doing. You're using your judgment in your day-to-day, establishing the parameters for your organization from a protection perspective, from a risk perspective. That said, you're managing through this. The other thing that I'm hearing is that you're taking care of the organization in a way that, you know, again, using your best judgment, but in a way that is, you know, you see fit. Somehow in the last seven years from being outside counsel going to in-house counsel, there's obviously a confidence around that. My question is advice to outside counsel team members that like you were when you were at those firms and gaining that confidence, gaining that knowledge, being able to understand what their clients have on their desks, being able to understand what they need to do to be a good partner. Any advice you would give those outside lawyers looking for your business? I would say they should spend time with the business people that they are hoping to become their clients. And that's very similar to the advice I give students in my law school class. I tell them, so I I teach a class at NYU Law School and down the block is NYU Business School. And I tell all my students that they're going to have plenty of friends who are in the law school, but they should walk down the street and go make some friends that are in the business school because it's amazing how differently business students communicate and think and envision the world compared to law students. And I think that carries through after graduation into the real world. And so for lawyers that are thinking about how to most effectively win business, develop clients, and eventually win the trust of the business decision makers at clients, I think Being able to understand how they think and sort of what their world looks like is really important. And the best way to do that is spend time with them. Some lawyers get to do a secondment at a client. I think that would be great. If your listeners are already practicing law, then it's probably not an option for them to sort of rewind the clock and spend a year working somewhere in between college and law school. But anything that one can do to understand more about how business people think and sort of what their day looks like and what their challenges are, I think is really important. And that's more so true for people that are looking to get early stage clients. I mean, if someone's looking to pitch business to 
in-house lawyers at Google or other large companies, well, that's effectively the law department there, the legal department there is effectively a single client law firm. And so maybe there's a little bit more um, alignment than what I'm describing. But I've certainly observed that law firm lawyers act and think very differently from business decision makers. And I think in-house lawyers sit somewhere along this spectrum, depending on the individual and the role in their company. And a lot of business decision makers have a visceral negative reaction to lawyers. And so if a lawyer wants to connect with a business decision maker and win them as a client, I think they need to avoid triggering that reflex and learn how to communicate with them and connect with them and learn what's important to them. One of the things that the company Axiom Law has done is they've partnered with McKenzie to come in and establish a mini MBA program for their lawyers. So that, of course, if you think about the Axiom model, they have a lot of lawyers coming from a lot of different places, right, that work within their model. And they wanted to give them a baseline of business education. We've debated on left foot whether formal business education is needed or maybe just an interest. So that's interesting and certainly something that I would have found valuable when I started practicing. And I know a lot of law firms also do that as part of onboarding or first or second year training. What this McKinsey mini MBA sounds like and what the training programs at law firms that I'm familiar with are, it's really the substantive knowledge, whether it's accounting or marketing or other things. And I think what I'm talking about is a mindset and a way of viewing the world. Even on a conference call full of lawyers, that's very different than a conference call full of business people. In terms of the way people orient themselves towards making decisions or just even something as simple as whether there's a specific recap on next steps, ownership of action items and things like that. I mean, so many times I've been on a call with a lot of lawyers where you end a call that lasts 60 minutes and no one knows what they're supposed to do or what the next steps are or what was resolved. And that's just something that is an anathema to more action-oriented business decision makers. And I'm certainly guilty of that also. But I think being able to spend more time with business people can help lawyers understand that perspective. So that's a little bit different than sort of the substantive knowledge that you might learn in a mini MBA course. I think to your point earlier, for those lawyers that took a year between and worked in an area possibly the area in which they're going to work, whether it's in a private equity firm or a venture capital firm looking at deals or whether it's in a tech company looking at the challenges there and really being part of a business before moving on to law school. You know, what a great opportunity. And secondment has definitely been mentioned. It could be of tremendous value, not only to the lawyer, but to the firm. You have strong energy about your work. What do you enjoy most about the work that you do? The thing I enjoy the most about what I do is the company that I get to do it for and the people that I work with. Beyond that, it's the mission of the company. I mean, what Meetup is trying to do and having great success at doing is doing something that no other online platform is doing. I mean, we're connecting people that don't already know each other yet, but who should. And from those connections, these amazing things happen. And so being a part of that and being able to sort of help support that effort is something that I really enjoy. Great content. 
David, we appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? We've covered it all in terms of networking and the way in which I interact with legal service providers or technology service providers. One thing that I'd like to share, which hopefully can benefit at least one person who's listening, what I've learned through my career is that in order to be truly successful, I think you need to really love and be engaged in what you're doing. And there's so many different ways to be a lawyer that it took me a while to figure out exactly what the right role and fit was for me. If there's lawyers out there that are listening that are excited about being a lawyer, but not necessarily excited about the role that they have now, then I would just really encourage them to consider what else they could be doing. You know, my career path has been a very long and winding road. And along the way, I've tried a lot of different things. And so there's no one way to be a lawyer, but there's probably one job out there that's right for you. So I would just encourage people to keep trying to find what that job is. Terrific last point, David. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thanks so much, Nicole. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time. Thank you.